Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody. This is your host, Bob Wintermute. Welcome to New Books in Military History. Each week, we select an interesting book on a historical topic and interview the author. This week, we are speaking with Frederick Crome about his recent book, Fighting the Future War, an anthology of science fiction war stories, 1914-1945. Chrome's book is a delightful collection of long-lost short stories from the golden age of the pulps, each presenting a unique view at future military technology and wars. While some of the stories do border on the fantastic, others have proven to be far more prescient than one might think. The value of Chrome's collection is multidimensional. Fighting the Future War not only offers a view into how earlier generations processed the experiences of two wars, depression, and the rise of fascism, it also provides interested readers with a wealth of counterfactuals, fantasies, and imaginary conflicts that each offer their own insights into the cultural milieu of the first half of the American century. Researchers, teachers, casual readers alike, are certain to enjoy this impressive work, which itself promises to open up a new line of historical discourse for all who read it. Welcome again to New Books of Military History. This is your host, Bob Wintermute. Today we're talking with Frederick Crome about his book, Fighting the Future War, an anthology of science fiction war stories, 1914 to 1945. Such a great idea for a book, and one that is well executed to boot. Um, There's 29 different stories, many taken from the major pulp magazines of the age, each presenting a unique challenge for our guest, who sought to restore these stories to the larger narrative of the interwar years and lessons acquired or, or interpreted between the First and Second World Wars. I must add that I finished the book. It's fascinating on its own. It makes a great read, but it's also, I think, a significant resource for anybody who is teaching in the period. Fred, how are you today? I'm doing well, thank you. That's great, Fred. Um, why don't you say a little, introduce yourself to us? Well, uh, I teach at the University of Cincinnati Claremont College, uh, where I have uh, been since uh, 2007, and the uh, genesis of this book came from a conference that you and I first met at in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, a study for military history in 2009, where I met with the editor at Rutledge and presented several ideas, and this uh, this book was the one that they, uh, they they sort of latched onto, and it's been uh, been fun to do. That's great. It really is. It's always nice to think that the that it's a book is so easy to sell to publishers, too. <laughs> Well, the interesting part of the story is I actually envisioned this as the byproduct of another two projects. I was fascinated by images of the future and how they evolved in the 20th century, and I thought that, well, after I finished 
the monograph, I thought, well, wouldn't it be interesting if people actually had a chance to read some of the documents and stories that I was finding so fascinating? And it turned out, when I started discussing the idea, this was the one that the editor, Kim Gunther, was so excited by. And then, when the proposal was put in, the of the four referee reports, three came back within two weeks, absolutely enthusiastic about it. And I realized something very important, that I should not be put in charge of the world because I will get things the back way wrong. <laughs> so apparently, I really need to get the stories out there first before I actually do the, uh, the interpretive monograph. That's great. That's, that's great. And wow, these are great stories. And <laughs> I, I've got to ask you first of all, you know, what was the selection process you used to identify them? Well, part of it was, and I, I used several, I should start by saying I used several uh, selection processes. One was several of these stories were iconic, mm-hmm. but only a few of them. I, I went to the pulp magazines and I did some systematic examinations, both online through uh, collectors who have posted uh, tables of contents to their website just to see what titles were, there were out there. And then I spent several days at the Pop Culture Library at Bowling Green State University and then discovered that the Library of Cincinnati and Hamilton County had a run of amazing stories on microfilm. Oh my. So a number of different sources. I uh, purchased several through eBay myself. <laughs> and I, uh, what I discovered was uh, that despite some conventional wisdom that there was not much of a cult presence for the future war story after 1918, in fact, it was loaded. I mean, I, the original draft of this book was twice the size. But the, uh, the publisher basically told me that I had to cut down because uh, it would just make the price too exorbitant. So uh, what I did is I, I looked at the iconic stories that were not in novels, uh, novels, I think, were easier to find. Uh, mm-hmm. Many of them have been reprinted a num- number of times. So of all the stories that are used in this collection, only a few of them have appeared since they were published in the in pulp in the interwar period. Yeah, we should, we, was, should, we should say, too, I mean, just to remind yeah. the readers yeah. or the listeners that we're talking about 29 stories in all. Right. And the original draft had about, uh, about 65. Oh, my and word. So, Right, and I I looked at, and it was it was almost physically painful to have to cut. I mean, uh, they did tell me about halfway through that if uh, if this sells very well, they do a volume two. I suspect that was just their way of preventing me from having a psychotic embolism. But <laughs> the, uh, with the exception of a few stories, uh, for example, uh, when I did the proposal, uh, one of the stories we proposed, which is in the book is Philip Francis Nolan's story, Armageddon 2419, mm-hmm. which is the introduction of the Anthony Buck Rogers character. Yes. And it has been republished. It appears in book. It's also on E. Gutenberg. And I said, well, it's an iconic story, but it can be left out. And every one of the referees said, no, I think you should leave that in. So that one was left in, uh, with the exception of two other short stories, though. None of these have been republished. And it's not a—it's not really a copyright issue with any of these either, is it? No, no. Uh, what uh, I, I operate from the perspective of what Robert Darnton, the historian of uh, Princeton University, who's written about pre-revolutionary France, remarked that when he asserted that iconic literature and great literature is a mediation between the present and the past, and what you really need to look at is what people were actually reading at the time, mm-hmm. and so only a very small percentage of material is ever republished. And that's one of the reasons I went to the pulp is because the books are much more easily found and much more easily republished. Yeah. 
Yeah. And most people have not looked at the pulp. And so what I discovered, for example, is um, there's a great debate or has swirled around Hugo Gernsbeck, who, a, a Jewish immigrant from Luxembourg, founded uh, the Electrical Experimenter magazine, eventually mm-hmm. uh, founded Amazing Stories. When he died in 1967, the New York Times lauded him as the father of science fiction. Yes. And so the big question is, is he the false villain of science fiction? Did he hold the genre back or did he promote it? And I didn't get involved in that argument initially. What I did, though, was look at his World War I contributions in his magazine, The Electrical Experimenter, which predated Amazing Stories by a decade. And what I found is that virtually no one has pointed out that Hugo Gernsbeck speculated about future war scenarios. Yeah. yeah. And that in his writings on World War I, you see the origin of science fiction, the genre as he envisioned it. And so uh, the first, as you know, the first part of this book is Hugo Gernsbeck's World War I contributions, which are absolutely fascinating. And they've not seen the light of day since they were published in 1916, 1917, 1918. And I'm glad they're here. We're going to talk a bit more sure. about Hugo Gernsbeck in a bit. I mean, they're important right. stories. But right, yeah, you know, coming back to the selection process, and you mentioned, of right. course, the, the novel and the you know the the absence right. of the novel. Right. Um, but is there any thought towards examining, if not in full, the different novels, at least certainly yeah. in in part, or you know, to offer a means of contextualizing them alongside these stories. I did think about that, and I decided against it uh, in part for the sheer volume of material that was just not available to contemporary readers from the pulp. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's several stories in here which have a certain cult status. So, for example, Deadline, which was published in uh, 1944 in World War II, most yes. science fiction fans know that that's a reference. It's not the story references the atomic bomb. Uh, Campbell, the editor of Astounding, used to claim that the FBI showed up at his door and tried to recall the, all the issues. And certainly, a, if you look at the documentary evidence, which a historian did about 15 years ago, he was visited by the FBI, as was the author, Clive Cartmel. But what you find is that they were just trying to see if there was a leak in the Manhattan Project. Uh, there was no attempt to try and recall all of astounding stories. So the story is well known. It's been mentioned, as a matter of fact, it was mentioned about a year ago in a Slate magazine article online. Hmm. But what I discovered is no one had actually read the story. And when I actually went to read the story, I found out it was nothing to what I expected. So uh, I think while it would be interesting to be able to look at the novels and try and contextualize them and maybe use excerpts, given the space limitations I was under and given the accessibility issue, which was my determining factor, I decided to go with just material that had not been published before. Okay. Okay. Well, I mean, again, I'm, I'm glad to see it. I mean, it's, it's, yes. it's an impressive collection. And, of course, you mentioned Hugo Gernsback, the father yes. of science fiction and all. Right. What was his specific interest? Or do we know what his specific interest was in military science fiction? Well, after 1926, not very much explicitly in his editorials. Unfortunately, uh-huh. if his correspondence has survived, no one has discovered it yet, which would be very interesting. Now, there are fragments of correspondence. There are individual letters one can find. Uh-huh. Uh, one day I hope to go to uh, the University of Liverpool where the papers of uh, John Wyndham uh, are. He wrote for Gernsbeck's magazines in the early 30s. There may be correspondence, but it's more likely to be correspondence with the uh, Gernsbeck's associate editor, David Lasser. But, so we, we only have tantalizing clues of the 19, post-1926 period where he just describes 
his interest in speculation and trying to predict or promote new technology. Yeah. Uh, so the only real sense we have of his approach to military science is from his World War One writing, which, as I say, has been virtually ignored. Yeah. Uh, and uh, what what you look at, if you see, for example, in the collection, there's a, uh, a 1918 piece called Will the Germans Bombard New York? And he speculates about a possible uh, creation of a German submarine that could transport planes to sneak in close to New York, uh, the harbor. And I was reminded as I read that about a Japanese uh, submarine uh, from uh-huh. World War II that planned to bomb the Panama Canal. Now, whether or not the Japanese had actually read Gernsback, can't tell. <laughs> but he certainly guessed right. But then most of the, uh, most of the stories did not involve the, the actual planned attack. He was worried about it. He did speculate on it. And he also made a comment about how they could, the German pilots could then ditch their planes off the coast of Long Island and melt into multi-ethnic New York culture. <laughs> uh, but the, the vehicle, the concept, the scenario, for want of a better way to put it, was mostly Gernsback's way of promoting concepts of new technology, devices, sonar, uh, remote-controlled and remote-detonated uh, Mine. Right. All See, of now, which was, eventually was, appeared. Yeah, with this story, I mean, I, I, I'm really fascinated by the, by the Germans bombarding New York story. You know, yeah. I've, I read that through the lens of ethnic exceptionalism, American exceptionalism, and also, you know, thinking, well, is this a reflection of the hype and war fears mm-hmm. associated with the Germans and a potential fifth column or not? And, right. Well, and he wrote it two years after the uh, explosion of the Black Tom. Yeah. So he wasn't, uh, what's the old adage, uh, even paranoid to have their enemies. Mm-hmm. And I think Gernsback was certainly reacting to uh, invasion scares or tax scares. And if you recall in the book, I actually juxtaposed that, uh, the cover of that particular issue of the Electrical Experimenter with the uh, Pinnell poster yeah. showing the Statue of Liberty being destroyed by uh, German bombers for the Liberty Loan. And so I think it was very much in the air. And if you, uh, Gernsback also wrote several letters to the editor of uh, the New York Times, in which he uh, denounced German uh, militarism. He denounced, and this was even before American entry into the war, where he uh, lamented the state of his homeland of Luxembourg under German occupation. I suspect, despite the fact that he was German in culture, at least partially from his uh, origins in Luxembourg, I suspect he was something of a Germanophobe even before April of 1917. Right, right. And, of course, the, the, that fear of the hyphen is, is appears in this story. Right. And they reinforce that. You know, you got to love some of these far-fetched conceits in Gernsback stories. You know, like right. shooting with electricity or the magnetic and storm. If, and if that isn't an early laser beam, I've just never seen an illustration of uh, an early laser beam. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's on the cover of the book, too. Uh, right. Produce that was brilliant actually color. one that I bought. That was an actual experimenter I bought back in 2004 on eBay when this project was just in its infancy, and I was serving as an exhibit historian for a, a exhibit at the Cincinnati Museum Center on 350 years of American Jewish life, and I wanted to put something in about science fiction and the Jewish role in the creation of it, and I found that purely by accident, so I ended up buying that. We used it in the exhibit, and I thought, wow, I'm really having some fun here. Oh, it's a great image, and again, to describe it for our listeners, it shows a line of... You have to presume they're doughboys when you look at the lemon right. squeezer hats equipped right. in a, a a shrouded gas mask with laser packs on their back. 
And if you look to the lower part of the picture, you'll see they actually have a, a cord that goes back to their own trench. Yes. Right. So uh, I, I think uh, they're even connected. So that was uh, there, there's there's a lot in the picture. Yes, yeah. There's a lot in the picture, and many of the the covers Gernsback didn't create the Garish magazine cover, but I think he exploited it to a level that no one else had managed to that point. Oh, the Amazing Stories covers are beautiful. Well into right. the 30s and 40s. But okay. you know, as 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 far fetched as some of these stories are, I mean, others like winning the war right. or the trench destroyer, right, are really rather prescient. Right. Yes. Did he have his finger on the pulse of of what was possible in this conflict? I think, well, he was a trained engineer. He was also a fan of H. G. Wells in most cases. Now, H.G. Wells wrote The Land Ironclads in 1903, which influenced Winston Churchill and that committee in 1915 that first developed the tank. Yes. But he, if, what's interesting about the, the trench destroyer is Gernsback actually argued that the, ta- the tank, as it was appearing on the Western Front in 1916, was not going to break the stalemate. Mm-hmm. And that, uh, in that context, he was right. If you look at most of his other predictions, he did think that more gadgets more technology would win the war with fewer casualties. In that context, as a contemporary observer, he was usually wrong. But he was right about the tank. And the when I when I looked at that picture of the trench destroyer and when I read the description, what it actually reminded me of was, uh, and I just read uh, a book uh, just uh, reviewed a book recently on Britain's uh, war machine. Yes. Uh, David Egerton. It's very interesting. He talked about Churchill's create, um, promotion of a trench digging machine in 1939-1940, because the assumption was that the next, the current war would be the repeat of the last war. Mm-hmm. And they actually did come up with a prototype that dug trenches. And the description, I wish I could find a picture of it, the description sounds remarkably like his trench destroyer. Interesting. Uh, so I think the major difference is no shovels. <laughs> uh, like many of Gernsback's ideas, the physics were relatively sound. The theoretical engineering was relatively sound. The only problem was, of course, the reality. It's the same argument people make about Gene Roddenberry today. <laughs> right, right, right. He, uh, he had some of the physics quite right, but uh, he, the only thing wrong with his ideas was reality. Right. Let's move past Gernsbeck, you know, to the other writers you talk yep. about during the First World War. There really is this obsession amongst them with electromagnetic fields. Right. Was this yes. a universal interest, you think? I don't think it was, it was. It was certainly common. I wouldn't call it universal, but it was very common in that period. If you look at the early 20th century, and I know it was in Britain, and I know it was in the United States, I would not be surprised if you could find it in Germany and France. There was an obsession with electricity and electromagnetism. There was a piece I read uh, from the 1890s uh, in which a person speculated that electromagnetism would lead to immortality. Right. <clears throat> so you have the same period where, uh, uh, I'm trying to remember the Russian author's name, the author of Red Star. Bogdanov, I'm going to mash the name up, but he uh, he was part of a movement which argued for the uh, blood theory, where you replace blood, and there was also an electromagnetic dimension to that. Huh. So I think it was a very common obsession among certain classes of people that uh, when I suppose when you look at it, I mean, the original Frankenstein story doesn't have an electricity in it, but when the movies come out, it's all about electricity. I suspect it was hitting a pop culture nerve. Right. Which is the only way you could explain why they were obsessed with trying to show electricity bringing the monster to life. Well, it is. The idea of electromagnetism as being such a powerful force, the very essence, I mean, before uh, 
string theory or quantum physics, the uh, the essence of the universe was electromagnets. Right, and of course, you know, this obviously tail uh, the tailgate of Edison's discoveries, but not only Edison, but Nikolai Tesla as Tesla, well. And Tesla was a Tesla was one of Gernsback's heroes. Turned out they. Uh, in 1919, they started to fall out, and I've read their correspondence. One of the few correspondence of Gernsback's uh, series that remains it was published a few years ago by the Tesla uh, fan club. I, I, I'm calling them that because it was a museum out in the continent of Europe that uh, actually still had this uh, correspondence. The book was almost impossible to find. It was actually at Stanford University, so I was able to borrow it. Wow. And they, Gernsback had given Tesla free reign to write a series of articles for Electrical Experimenter, but they, the correspondence, they increasingly became annoyed at each other. Tesla, for how Gernsback was demanding things to be on time and editing things, and Gernsback <laughs> to Tesla for not writing things that people could understand. <laughs> and so by 1920, they were not speaking to each other. Sounds like a so, t- almost like a typical editor-writer's relationship. <laughs> I was going to say, uh, two very uh, intelligent uh, iconoclasts who uh, were used to breaking the rules on their own, who suddenly found out that the other person liked to break the rules. Yes. And so, as you say, also the editor-writer relationship can often be fractured. <laughs> well, How's that for polite? <laughs> you know, so moving to the 20s, you know, right. poison gas, you know, rocket pack wearing airmen, right. but also, you know, yellow perils. Oh, yes. Uh, well, to... and even you have some uh, pre-war and World War One sense of that, uh, the uh, notion of, in the... Uh, George uh, Stratton story about the Japanese-Chinese-Mexican alliance against the U.S., the uh, the fear of the other in the 1920s, and that's one of the reasons, one of several reasons why the Philip Francis Nolan story is so powerful, is that it's the fear of the Asiatic horde, the Hun, right. uh, or, or they call them the Han in this. And it's always, and just as a sidebar, it's always fascinating how in the 20s and when the comic strip started in the late 20s, the enemy was the Han. Mm-hmm. By the late 1930s, the serial that was shown in movies, they had totally supplanted the Han with, well, let's just say they were German light. Right. So uh, the the thing about the science fiction is the enemy is very protean. It could be whatever you want it to be. And in the 20s, I think it reflected the general fear of the other being the Oriental. Right. The other thing was, if you look at the 20s, uh, that makes it interesting, is that the dichotomy between rural and urban, that the America was, by the 20s, a majority urban population, now only by a little bit over 50%, but still a multi-ethnic urban population, and yet the ideal was so often expressed as the rural, that the cities represented a generation, and the countryside represented regeneration. Mm-hmm. And so... The Buck Rogers story, the Anthony Buck Rogers story, reflects, I think, not only the fear of the other, but this fear of uh, urban degeneration. Right. Because the Han controlled the cities, and in those cities, he described them as being decadent. And yet, in the countryside, of the Americans who had been conquered 400 years earlier by the Han had fallen to barbarism, but now, because of that pioneer spirit, the frontier, uh, frontier sort of atmosphere, they had become regenerated as the new Americans. Well, that, that's interesting because I'm, I'm thinking of similar portrayals of other pulp stories, other pulp genres during the period yeah. as well. Right. I mean, you know, Robert E. Howard is and right. H.P. Howard Phillips Lovecraft come to mind, but I think you see oh, that yeah. very much present in, in all the pulps, which oh, is yes. surprising. Oh, well, yes. I mean, look at the uh, the Shadow. 
Yeah. The, uh, the cult stories of the shadow. Very the spider, often. which is another uh, lost one. Yeah. The uh, the Fu Manchu series was incredibly popular. Mm-hmm. And if you look also at some of the uh, the adventure pulps, uh, air stories, those sort of things, uh, Ace, the ones that are supposedly based on World War One, World War One Ace magazine, things along those lines, you find that uh, they're even though the enemy might be a German, it's kind of a Eastern German, an Eastern <laughs> and almost Orientalized German. Right. 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 So yes, the uh, the the fear of the other was very much racialized in the twenties. Well, you know, going back to the other part of the stories for the tw- for the twenties too. I mean, again, looking towards air power and poison right. gas and such. Is there any sense that this is an attempt to contextualize, you know, the developing air theory of the times? Yes, I think so. The the rise of the airman as a character, I think, reflects the general rise of the airman in popular culture. Uh, Robert Wall's books on the, uh, the the romance of the air, where mm-hmm. he looks at it across, and with the virtue of those books is he looks at it across national boundaries. And I think if you look at Wells' work, Wells anticipates, H.G. Wells anticipates World War I with his war in the air, amongst others. And then after the war, the airman becomes the symbol of virtue. But right. also air, the air power becomes the, the great threat. I mean, we look to 1936 and Wells' uh, film he did with Alexander Korda, Things to Come. Yes. The destruction from the air, where there's a fear of not only aerial bombing, but aerial gas warfare is going to destroy civilization, but then the airmen are also the redemptive part of civilization. They're the ones who restore civilization. And I think that that is definitely a symptom of people trying to come to grips with the new age. Uh, The tanker doesn't become the hero. Even though the tank is introduced in World War I, air power and the rise of the airmen are a very important theme in this, this collection, you don't have the, the ground pounder or the tanker being the hero. Right. Well, of course, the tank is, is certainly called into question because of its inability right. to achieve decision. But it's still right. on the ground. It's still associated with right. you know the mud and blood that, that seems to characterize right. ground warfare. And, and yet most military experts, I mean, uh, Douglas Haig's final report on the Western Front downplayed air power. Yeah. So certainly military theorists were still struggling with it, some discounting it. But it struck a chord with the popular imagination, and I suspect, and this is, I'm, I'm extrapolating well into the future, that the new frontier was the air. The new frontier was the air. The romance of the air was attractive to people. And so if you jump ahead to the 1960s, when Roddenberry used the term final frontier of space, I think he was building on what started out in this uh, period, World War One and the post-war period, of the uh, the air being the new frontier. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Your authors not only write about future war, I mean, they also right. speak in the apocalyptic mode as well. Yes, and they, they, tap, they tap into uh, some very well-worn tropes of, uh, of degeneration, destruction, redemption. So for the first time, you also see stories about destruction without redemption. Uh, we we have both in that period. So um, the apocalyptic tradition goes back quite a ways. But what the science fiction authors in this period do is, in some cases, they well, how should I put this? They shade the religious dimension, right. giving it new terminology. But it's still very much this uh, 
temptation, degradation, and redemption sort of story. Right. Sometimes it's the uh, well. Sometimes it's basically the uh, the apocalypse, the antichrist, and uh, all of the uh, the worst parts of the uh, Book of Revelations. They just put it with laser beams. <laughs> and sometimes it's a uh, concept that is divorced from religion, where uh, war will uh, destroy civilization. And what they do is they look to history, mm-hmm. and they use the model of the fall of Rome, barbarism, and then eventually the clawing back of civilization. Right. Well, I wonder also, I mean, you know, it, certainly this, these stories are being written against the backdrop, at least in the 30s, with depression, right. fascism, and other existential threats. But I, I wonder, too, if it's not also a feature, you know, reflected in, for some authors, of again about fears of racial degeneration. Yes, I think definitely there is a very consistent theme of racial degeneration in this. Uh, Wells described it, and not so much as entropy, he didn't use that term, I'll use it, but Wells has set a tone for this uh, with the argument, and it goes all the way back to the time machine, you could see it in The War in the Air, you certainly see it in Things to Come, and the book, The Shape of Things to Come, which is actually much different in some respects than the movie, but the notion that unless humanity always has another goal, and not necessarily war. I mean, the pre-1914 period, war was considered the curative to racial degeneration. Right. But World War I had changed that for many writers. So what they're looking for is science, air power, later space power, would be the cure for racial degeneration. Right. And I think there, there was an obsession about it. There was a deep obsession about it in this period. And so you, uh, they're acting out, many of the, uh, the fantasies uh, act out that anxiety of the age. Mm-hmm. You know, I think the unspoken question here is just how influential were these stories? I mean, did they reach an audience that could actually reflect upon the themes that well, were presented? That's, that's the interesting challenge of this. Uh, certainly these were read. I mean, we know the, we know the Pope's were widely disseminated. Mm-hmm. We know that uh, from the creation of fandom that there was a huge audience uh, for these. Where does this audience become influential is the interesting question. A, a joke amongst science fiction circles is that the only people surprised by the dropping of the atomic bomb in August of 1945 were people who were not science fiction fans. <laughs> uh, I, I'm not sure that's really, you know, that sort, of, that sort of joke, I think, might be more retroactive than proactive. I'm not sure that that's actually the case, but certainly we find stories of uh, atomic bombs, of nuclear power. Uh, Robert Heinlein wrote a piece about uh, nuclear reactors before the first nuclear reactor was ever made. Right. Uh, there, you, you probably saw the poll, you read the story about the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. Yeah. From the October 1939 issue of Amazing Stories. So I suppose... The only people who were surprised about the attack on Pearl Harbor were people who didn't read amazing stories, except <laughs> for the fact that it was the sixth scenario of an attack on Pearl Harbor. After all, the U.S. military did a mock war game about a Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor in 1934. I was going to say it's the book. I can't remember the author of it. It's on my shelf. Uh, Seven Deadly Scenarios? Uh, no, The Great Pacific War, written in the oh, 1930s. Oh, uh, 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 Homer Lee. Yes. Yes. With... Uh, he, he also predicted it, yes. Yeah, it was kind of a stock and trade, I, I guess. Right. Of... Well, and uh, what I always found interesting is that uh, everyone uh, had used Pearl Harbor, uh, I shouldn't say everyone, but 
there were a number of people who used Pearl Harbor. When Pearl Harbor was attacked, the Germans couldn't find it on the map. <laughs> well, they weren't reading <laughs> science fiction, obviously. Right. They were, they were obviously not reading the right science fiction. The, uh, so I, in terms of influence, it's one of the reasons why in the collection I included that, uh, that piece uh, from the war, the uh, infantry journal. Yes, I was uh, going to ask about that. That piece by Major Halpin, Jay Halpin Connolly, right? Uh, for our readers, and it's from the 19, July 1939 issue right. of the Infantry Journal. The, the and it was inf- War and a Mechanistic uh, Civilization. Yes, right. I mean, it's the Infantry Branch's official journal, right. and even here we see future war scenarios. Yes, and I, I was not able to find anything out about the author beyond that piece. Uh, what I, I discovered it purely by accident. I was reading uh, the uh, collection of essays in uh, uh, Roger Chickering's uh, book, The Shadows of Total War. Yes. Uh, was very, I was just reading it, and he had uh, uh, an article that I was using, I found interesting, about how you know, in, in Germany, in America, military officials you know, plan for the next war. How do they deal with this question? And then there was this one reference there. So I, fortunately, when you have a good library system and interlibrary loan, I was able to get the article in about four days. And I'm reading this, and I'm thinking, oh, if this guy wasn't a science fiction fan, then this stuff is much more inclusive. The ideas are much further out there than anyone has ever considered. Oh, yeah. So that's, uh, it, it really does challenge our assumption of several things. One, that the notion that military officers are always busy fighting the last war over again. Uh, that what we see here is that there's certainly is an expectation that the next war will be different. Right. Uh, second is is how widespread were discussions about this. I mean, this is, as you say, the Infantry Journal is rather a prestigious publication for the American Army. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, at, father, this, at this point, it's coming off of being uh, edited by George C. Marshall, I believe, just a few right. months Right. I believe you're right there. And uh, my father, who was a, a career Army officer, he, uh, he got the night, I remember on the shelf in his library where, uh, the not the infantry journal, but some of the publications of the uh, U.S. Army that he was a subscriber to. I think he was a graduate of the Command and General Staff College, so he got these journals from it. And I, I remember well, it was kind of cool when I was in high school. I had to do a project on the uh, Arab-Israeli War, and there were all these articles in this um, magazine about uh, the 1970 military assessment of it and where it would go mm-hmm. from there. So I, I, I mean, this this so certainly by the 70s, you have this sense of the next situation war. There's at least discussion about it. So it does speak to a higher level of intellectual sophistication than we sometimes give credit for. Right. Right. Well, I mean, I guess there is a fine line, perhaps, between you know lessons learned assessments and right. hard science fiction. I mean, right, right. And I think also it does. Uh, if you look at the authors of uh, many of the stories, uh, I wouldn't say that a majority were veterans, mm-hmm. but a significant percentage were veterans. Right. Uh, Nathan Schachnar, who. Uh, wrote several of the stories that we used in this uh, collection. Uh, Schachner was a chemical warfare soldier in the U.S. Army in World War One. Uh, oh. There was a series of uh, stories that I could not use by a retired infantry-slash-aviation officer named uh, S.P. Meeks. In fact, the stories were actually, he used his retired rank, Captain S.P. Meeks. <laughs> so there's a number of veterans, and even if they did not necessarily see combat, they were people who were witnesses to World War One. Almost right. every single one of them, and I think that they, that is significant because uh, with the communications revolution of the early 20th century, knowledge of war was inculcated much further down the uh, the, the, the chain of understanding. 
that is American society. So I think even if they were not veterans, many of them were witnesses in the, in the context of hearing about it, reading about the casualties, and many of the laments. And we sometimes forget that in the 1920s, many of the, uh, many of the commemorations, many of the writings spoke very highly of their, the, the cause. Now, the, the events may have been bloody right. and nothing to be cheering about, but if you look at how people commemorated the war for the first decade afterwards, they, they believed they were in the right. So we tend to, again, I think, but to Darnton's point, we look at All Quiet on the Western Front, a magnificent novel, but for every All Quiet on the Western Front, there's a storm of steel. Yes. Which is virtually forgotten today. But this is what people are reading. And so I think for some people, they, uh, even for the anti-war group, I think that they, uh, they do reflect those anxieties that come out of the war. Uh, and that's uh, something I think we, we, as you say, it, it brings for a real question about how deep this, uh, this information goes and how uh, much it was discussed. It's yeah. a fascinating question. Yeah. Well, I mean, you, you may raise the peace movement as well, or the anti-war movement. And right. I, I would think that some of these stories certainly can be taken as pleas for peace or appeals to, yes. to an end of war. Right. But at the same time, even the stories that are about a world at, without a world after war, let me right. phrase it that way, they're rather bleak in tone, too. Yes. I mean, yes. was the prospect of peace maybe too alien for these writers? Were they that pessimistic about man's future? I, I, I think a lot of them were. I think a lot of them were. And that, uh, it, uh, it's, it speaks to, I, I hate to use the term general malaise, but it does speak to a sense that they the issues that the first world war was fought were fought over had not been settled, and it speaks to a sense that uh, a sort of fatalism that uh, well we don't want to go to war again, but uh, it almost seems like that's the natural state of human history. Mm-hmm. And so certainly by thirty six thirty seven, uh, you could see a increased stridency of a fear of war, uh, and yet at the same time the anti-war slant does not make a villain of the soldier automatically. One of the things that, mm-hmm. if you look at this, there's still a residual deference towards military officials, towards uh, political figures, and a, re- a recognition that, well, even if our side doesn't like war, there's not much we can do about the other side wanting war. Right, right. Well, I think it also speaks, too, towards just how, you know, tied to traditional... Um, memes about, you know, authority and honor and war society yes. was in the 1930s, where... Right. You know, you... Well, that's one of the reasons why I think the Nathan Schaffner piece of, uh, that, I, that I included, not the, the, the one about the technocrats, but the, the piece World Gone Mad yes. from uh, Amazing Stories from October 1935, is one that really does deserve a, a much wider circulation than it has gotten in the past, because it, he really does confront the elephant in the room. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the big uh, elephant in the room is that is human progress really possible? Uh, one of the characters in there says, you know, man's progress is a lie. It's all a lie. And you know, this is one of those, you know, he dies, the girl dies, everybody dies stories. <laughs> so, and I think it, it, it's, it's a very much a lament. And I think we look at Schaffner's career. I mean, he starts out in the uh, early 30s uh, believing that technocrats could uh, take on the establishment and win, 
mm-hmm. uh, deal with the corrupt politicians, as well as uh, one of his characters is the uh, the millionaire playboy inventor who also has a uh, ethos of national service. I mean, I'd love to meet these people sometime. <laughs> I, I hear about them, but I've never met them. <laughs> but the the other by, by 1935, 1936, he's really pessimistic. And uh, what's interesting is that by 1936 and 37, he's turned to history. He's writing biographies of Aaron Burr and Alexander Hamilton, but he's also becoming the legal advisor to the American Jewish Committee, which is fighting bigotry. And after the war, he does, in conjunction with a... uh, an artist who I, I don't remember the name of, who's not very famous, he did a cartoon called Joe Worker. Hmm. And Joe Worker is set in post-World War II America, and it's a returning veteran who, instead of trying to change the world, is just trying to change how labor management relations are done at one particular plant, fighting bigotry. And it's almost a Voltaire-like, well, let's just tend our own garden here. Uh-huh. And the, though it is funny because he is a science fiction writer, from way back, he had to throw in a couple of Nazis <laughs> in, in the Joe Worker story. Even, even <laughs> after the war. <laughs> after the war, uh, it turns out he had one character, it was Joseph Goebbels' cousin, who had escaped to America, who was behind the anti-union activity. Oh, I wonder if he, if he brought Hitler's gold with him then. <laughs> uh, you know, it, it, it's rather imaginative, but uh, as I say, it, 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 you can just tell that he just couldn't leave some of it behind him. Uh, <laughs> Well, I mean, it's interesting because you know we've, we've talked about the issue of the yellow peril, you know, the right. the, the role of the Asian trope, the, right. the um, negative trope in these stories. We're also talking about the Nazi trope. Right. What about the the Bolsheviks? What about the communists? How do they oh, appear? Oh, all through there, yes. Uh, the, uh, the the enemy in the uh, the SP Meek story, the ones I couldn't fit in, uh, was actually a Bolshevik. Uh, okay. Bolshevik, by the way, aligned with the Asians. Ah. So there, there are a lot of twofers here. There are even before the rise of uh, Mao and the Chinese communists. There, there were uh, very common to align the Bolsheviks. Bolsheviks were very often described as Eastern or Oriental and or an orientation, not quite European, because oh. if they were Western, of course, they wouldn't be Bolsheviks. Of course, of course. Right. So we do. There is a very strong anti-Bolshevik, anti-communist thread running through a lot of these stories. Yes. Would you call these stories, you know? Um, American exceptionalists in the in the context of their celebrated American values, or are they more progress oriented stories? I'm not sure that those categories are mutually exclusive. Mm-hmm. I I think that there is a certain uh, American exceptionalism you can find here. A number of examples of Yankee ingenuity or the use of the frontier myth. Uh, I, they're very common the uh, the use of the American exceptionalism, but also a Amongst those that were not as pessimistic, or even those who were pessimistic who felt we could muddle through, there was this sense of uh, a faith that there, tomorrow could be better than today, the fantasy scenario, as right. one historian calls it. You can see some of the fantasy scenarios. And which which those, speaks directly to a people living through depression right. and war, too. Right. And, and some of that, I was about to say this, and some of those reflect, I think, the times in which they were written where, okay, it, it's they're making contemporary comments about greed and political malfeasance, but if we look at how technology or how the American hero uses technology, we will come through to a better day. Mm-hmm. And as as I said, there are, there are a number of stories like this that just could not be 
fit into this. I, I mean, I, I, I sometimes wake up in the middle of the night and think, well, what if they were serious and they really did want a, a volume two? Wouldn't that be cool? Uh, but <laughs> I've got other things to do, too. So <laughs> <laughs> You don't want to be locked in as the pulp historian for the no, rest I, of your I career. Mind, just, I, I think I'd like to take this beyond 1945. Uh, the, the funny thing is if they do decide they want a volume two, it's 90% done. So. <laughs> That's good. We should all be so lucky. That out pretty quickly. We should all be so lucky to have that second book ready to go. Right. I. I but I'm not going to sit around the way, you know, by the phone waiting for it. I, I think what I'm much more interested to do is well, two things. One, taking the story beyond 1945, which introduces concepts of nuclear holocaust and the ambivalence of atomic energy, uh, but also to turn to that what what I thought was supposed to be the first project, which would be the interpretive monograph about the subject. Yeah. <laughs> so. I'm sure you will. Listen, one of my favorite stories in the book is Dr. Loudon's Armageddon. Yeah. Great story. Fascinating, isn't it? It is. And for the listener, in this story, the author describes the principled act of a physicist aimed at denying the Nazis an atomic device. Uh-huh. Uh, great story. I mean, and it, there actually is a ring of plausibility to it, unlike some right. of these others. Um, I actually look forward to teaching with this story, to be honest. <laughs> Uh, well, I'm going to be trying that this this uh, this fall. I'm trying. I'm actually teaching a course based around these these stories. So I'm, I'm going to see how they, they react to that. So oh, I'll let you know. I can't wait to hear about that. What's your yeah. favorite story? Out of the um, well, I think I have uh, several. One is uh, "World Gone Mad" by Nathan Shatner. Uh, Doctor uh, Luden's Armageddon was one when I when I stumbled across it. I just had to include it. And the third is uh, Carl Spohr's "The Final War," okay. uh, which was. In two parts, but uh, because of space limitations, we only did part two. And I like <laughs> that's it the exciting I, one anyway. So, yeah. Well, and I think uh, it, it's what it was described at the time, and by the historian, um, I found out about the story when I was reading uh, Paul Carter's book on the history. Did a piece on the history of the pulp magazines. I uh, I think he's right. I think it is a science fiction version of All Quiet on the Western Front in some respects. Mm-hmm. But it's uh, very much also in the lines of what we just talked about, this fear of degeneration, the apocalyptic story. But in the end, somewhat uplifting is the story. Uh, that uh, in the end, the, the people who survive um, fit themselves to being better people. Mm-hmm. So uh, whether you change human nature so easily and whether we'd be so lucky as those are the type of people who survive, separate issue. But uh, it is a very evocative story. So I think uh, of those, I mean, I, I, I'm rather fond of most of the stories I put in. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think those those are my three favorites. Yeah, I mean, uh, again, for our listeners, there are, there are so many good stories in here. I'm sure people have their own favorites. Oh, yes. I hope you, you hear a lot about this, too, I mean, from people, about what stories you should have included. Or, oh, or... Uh, I, I, there, there's something to offend almost every science fiction geek in here. Because <laughs> uh, everyone has... Uh, a favorite story. Uh, but I think the only thing that's going to save me is, some, as I said, so many of these things have not been republished. Yeah. One of the referees, who it turned out, I, it was one of those blind referee uh, reports, obviously, uh, I found out later he was uh, someone who I'd been working with on and off for about 10 years. Oh. Uh, Nick Cull at the University of Southern California. Back in 2003, Nick, who he and I had contacted in the early 90s about some of our early research on World War II propaganda, he, um, he invited me to participate in the International Association of Media and History Conference, which was about images of the future. It was called uh, The History of the Future, mm-hmm. uh, Visions from the Past, and I did a presentation on H.G. Wells' film, Things to Come. Well, he was asked to serve as one of the referees, 
And we both found out later that I had not talked to Nick about doing this project. And so we found out, as I said later on, that he had uh, been one of the referees, and he had said that, I think it was Nick who had wrote, wrote this, I know one of the referee reports said, this was a very nice piece of science fiction archaeology. <laughs> so I think what's going to save me from major criticism is there's going to be so many uh, people out there who say, well, I didn't know these stories existed. I only knew about the ones that were reprinted. I only knew about the iconic ones. Yes. So I'm hoping that so many people are just stunned at how much is out there that they, uh, they and lessons of venom. But yes, uh, we will get a lot of people who say, well, why didn't you include this? Well, and, uh, I, well, as we all know as published authors, can't please everybody. Can't please everybody, and you know what? Keep calling the publisher, and there'll be a second volume. So. Right, I was going to say, I, I, my general response to this is if you're annoyed at me or angry at me, you're going to have to stand in line behind my mother and the IRS in that order. <laughs> so... Turning back to the book, (laughs) (laughs) what happened to the science fiction magazine market after the Second World War? Why why did it die off? Well, the conventional wisdom is that it died off. But if you look at the sheer volume of material published, Mm -hmm. it's still pretty impressive. Um, The reason that it does not so much die off as taper off a little bit. I mean, after all, there are still science fiction magazines today. Analog is the... uh, what eventually, astounding eventually becomes analog. Isaac Asimov's science fiction magazine was introduced. And so, um, two reasons. One is the development during World War II of inexpensive paperbacks right. for troops is going to be translated into inexpensive paperbacks for the general public. And so what happens in the aftermath of the war is that many publishers see, well, gold, dollar signs, with the notion that, well, why have them buy a monthly magazine when we could do an annual and we'll just pay these authors a little bit more money right. to get their stories. So they, there's still a number of pulps. Amazing stories goes into the 1960s. Astounding, as I said, still goes on and reinvented as analog. So you have the planet stories. You actually have a huge number of magazines, some of which only have very limited runs. But the, the short story format is going to find itself in direct competition with both the annual books, which collect stories, but also with the novels. I mean, after all, you can earn twice as much money turning your short story or novelette into a short novel or a longer novel. And so, and now publishing is experiencing a boom. So the inexpensive paperback, and that's why the 1950s, you see all of these uh, dime paperbacks, which are cheaper than the pulp magazine. Right. Pulp magazine was 25 or 35 cents, and the, uh, the, pulp, the, the novels cost 10 or 15 cents. The other is competition from comic books. Mm-hmm. Comic books in the 1950s, I, I think the statistic by uh, Bradford Wright cited in his book on Comic Book Nation is that in the 1950s, at one point, there was something like 80% of all teens under the age of 16 and above the age of 8 were reading comic books at one point or another. Mm-hmm. And so those tended to, I mean, uh, if adults have a, a guns and butter equation, kids have a comic books or science fiction magazine equation. Yep. Every 15 cents you spend on a comic book is 15 cents you can't spend on a pulp magazine. Well, yeah. I remember being a kid myself, you know, way back when, and it was always a choice between a co- couple of comic books or the famous Monsters magazine every month. Right, right, and that was, uh, uh, it helped if you had a brother who was also a science fiction geek who didn't necessarily share, but he wasn't in the house all the time. 
Yeah, I and tried. My brother wouldn't do that. <laughs> yeah, no, mine, mine hid them, but that's okay. I knew where he hid them. So uh, whatever he bought, I just bought the other thing, and I was generous. I said, you want to read this, and he would never offer, but I knew I knew how to steal them. Yeah. I, I suppose maybe I shouldn't admit that in public, but oh well. <laughs> <laughs> well, he'll be in touch with you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, I think the, uh, so as you say, is we you had choices. So I think the proliferation of the market uh, did lead to a falling off, but the, uh, the short, I don't know if it's, it's an interesting question about whether or not the short story format itself uh, became less less prevalent in the um, in that period. I think certainly the serial uh, right. becomes uh, the serialization to novels. I mean, by the 1970s, it had made a comeback, especially in Analog and Isaac Asimov's magazine, where uh, when when I had a subscription to it as a kid, that was always my birthday present. Is I got the subscription to Analog and Isaac Asimov. Uh-huh. You read the serialization, and a year later, it was out in the stores in paperback. Well, yeah. I, I remember too where um, it's also an area in the 70s and, and early 80s when you see the rise of more, I guess you could call it fan related fiction collections or fanzines, yeah. which right. begin to rival right. the formal publications. And those do have their origin in the 1930s. Some of the earliest fan uh, organizers of the uh, fandom eventually, some of them even became very prominent science fiction authors in their own right, like Isaac Asimov. Sure, Robert Block, yeah. Right, so I think the, uh, uh, there, that is something you will see uh, quite a lot of. Uh, the, uh, the fans, uh, one of the interesting things about science fiction is from a very early age of the genre, it was an interactive genre. I mean, one of the things Hugo Gernsbeck did was the letters column. Mm-hmm. And he published not only the letter, but he published the address of the individual. That was the assumption. If you wrote a letter to Hugo Gernsback and he published it, he would publish your name and your address, and he encouraged fans to write to each other. Fred, I think we're about ready to bring the interview to a close. And we, sure. we do have a customary last question for everyone that we yeah. talk to. And aside from the interpretive monograph, what is your next project? What plans do you have in the immediate future for your next work? Well, I think... I should prioritize looking at the post-1945 and seeing, uh, well, testing my assumption that maybe they may have fallen off in terms of the production of a pulp magazine, but uh, really seeing whether or not 1945 was a the break that we assume it to be. I mean, was the atomic bomb and the entering the atomic age the break that everyone assumes it to be? So I'd, I'd like to investigate that. Uh, if only, again, to make available to people, well, the responses I'm getting from everybody I've talked to about this book is they're really enjoying it. And I think that that's something uh, that, as an author, as a, someone who writes, uh, is, well, just one of the best feelings. Well, especially as a historian, it's not often we could say that we, you know, we our, our monographs are written for, for pleasure or people get pleasure right. from them. Right. I, I'm almost reluctant to count this as an academic project because I had so much fun doing it. Oh, my tenure committee would love this. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully my tenure committee will like it next year. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, thanks, Fred. I'm sure that's not going to be an issue for you. Uh, well, I appreciate it. <laughs> on behalf of New Books of Military History, this is your host, Bob Wintermute. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to our interview with Frederick Crome about his book, Fighting the Future War, an anthology of science fiction war stories, 1914 to 1945. On behalf of New Books in Military History, this is your host, Bob Wintermute.
Thank you for listening.